0: Is beauty a necessity or a luxury in faith and worship? Is beauty just a matter of personal preference? And what does beauty have to do with dogma? Join us today as we explore these questions and more with Stanley Kanopka, assistant principal violist with the Cleveland Orchestra. I'm Father Dave Pavonkin, and I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Please stay with us. University presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka, and I'm president of Franciscan University of Steubenville. And we're talking today about art and beauty in the Catholic tradition. I'm joined by our panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon, Professor of Biblical Theology and Evangelization. Got it all, here at the University. And we're pleased today to welcome Stanley Kanapka. Stanley is assistant principal violist with the Cleveland Orchestra and a member of the Viola and Chamber Music faculty at the Cleveland Institute of Music. He is also the director of Franciscan University's new Chamber Orchestra. It's a great blessing to have you with us. Thank you. So uh, how did you get here? <laughs> like, you've got a really fascinating story, so it's great. Well,
1: I got here because... Uh people like Scott Hahn and other professors here wrote books that I have on my wall. And uh, so you all moved me and made me aware of the school and the mission of the school. I'm a convert, so I became a Catholic about 18 years ago. And uh, Scott Hahn, among others, uh, led me to the church, helped helped lead me to the church. And little did I know, both my children ended up being uh, students here. And one's a philosophy major, one's a theology major, and Anyway, so I came on campus and I saw the incredible teaching and the theology and the philosophy departments being so outstanding. And uh, uh, I was like, wow, is there anything I can do? Is there something I can contribute to this great mission? And there was no one conducting an orchestra. And I said, well, maybe I'll try to drum something up, that's right. and now we have uh, a chamber orchestra.
0: Over lunch at Bennigan's, and now we thats that. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's great. Yeah,
1: exactly.
2: Well,
0: maybe just a story of, of growing up and, and how it is that you came to be honestly a world class musician mm-hmm. and, and and being able to now speak about the beauty that is in music and how that can lead individuals to God.
1: Yeah. When I was uh, nine years old, a uh, huge trajectory change for my whole life. Uh, my father was a huge part of that. Um, we moved to a part of Chicago where all justice was served via bare fists. Mm. And it was a very, very rough neighborhood. Uh, when I first moved in, I had a bunch of kids come to my house to see how many, how many push-ups I could do and how hard I could punch. Um, so anyway, that was traumatic, and that was uh, really disastrous. Um, not long after, my parents got divorced. Mm. So I had that trauma and drama in school, and then I had trauma and drama at home. And I was there um, as the eldest of two brothers and a sister, kind of functioning as a father a little bit, because my father Mm. was out and nine years old, that's a little young to do that. Um, So there I was with everything breaking out from under me. And my father gave me something I hold to this day. He said, son, if you, and I get choked up here thinking about it. If you read the Bible, you will gain faith and you will be able to have something to hold on to. So, I had my children's Bible with my pictures, Mm -hmm. and I just kind of pawed around, looking for something I could understand, and I've tripped up on the Proverbs. So, I wish I had the book now, but I underlined so many, trust in the Lord with all thy heart, you know, and I would just make that a mantra for myself. So, jumping out of a broken family into nothingness, the image of 9-11 and people coming out of their skyscrapers Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. what comes to mind today. Mm -hmm. I jumped out into the arms of our loving Heavenly Mm
3: Fathers. That's Mm -hmm. an extraordinary story. It's extraordinary more even now as I look back. So you never learned how to fight, Mm -hmm. but instead you steeped yourself.
1: Oh, no, I did. I'm not done with my story. (laughs) My father wasn't done with me. So, uh, so anyway, as I was reading the scriptures and and having this experience was like, oh my gosh, God is real. Of course, I began to pray. And he'd answered none of my prayers. He answered them in a way I could never have conceived of the question. He answered me with, with truth and goodness and beauty. Hmm. So, the first was beauty. So, I began violin- In Chicago. In Chicago, <laughs> believe it or not. No, is Chicago's you. a good- yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, started, I started my violin lessons at that point. And this, you know, with my faith, which was brand new, was this faculty that I could now see not only the meaning of scripture, but I could see the meaning of beauty. Mm -hmm. So, it was an amazing experience to be in such a tumultuous situation. But via the Holy Spirit, through violin, exposure to great composers, I began to compose music myself. Mm. Um, And I also was an artist. So, I had actually a full scholarship at the Art Institute of Chicago. So I was studying art. So I had all those elements there. And, uh, and then my father um, signed me up, which is, did not want to do this, to a boxing club. Oh. Speaking of fighting my way through. So, but what that gave me was self-discipline, oh. self-control, perseverance, patience. And a certain um,
3: physical confidence.
1: Well, that was the secondary aspect. I mean, to anyone else, I think they would have thought of it as like, that's oh, first, man, I could yeah. really, you know, I had a fist fight with the toughest kid in the school in the middle of the classroom and the teacher came and moved all the chairs and... Uh, Just let it happen? Oh, that the parents were as much on board with this sort of <laughs> ecosystem uh-huh. as as the kids were, because that's why it was that way. But But anyhow, so Uh, that boxing gave me those virtues. So there's your goodness. And then finally, the truth, of course, of Holy Scripture. That's amazing. uh, uh, That took me up about 40,000 feet. I saw myself, I saw my parents, and I saw, so emotional for me, I'm sorry, but I saw how the context around that divorce, everything built up to it, other family members, et cetera, and the wisdom coming from Proverbs, and of course, eventually from the gospels, and, yeah. and everything else I read. Of course, I look back and I see the three
3: transcendentals.
0: Of course, of that's course. That's what God well, answer in my prayer Well, that vantage
3: point uh, from which you now see everything, mm-hmm. truth, beauty, goodness, yeah. that has stayed with you all oh, these years.
1: Absolutely. I mean, of course, that's, they're eternal. You know, they're transcendent. And uh, so, yeah, I've been, my whole f- faith life, um, which started as evangelical, um, was really building on those three so.
0: areas um, yeah, continually to this day.
3: Mm-hmm. That's breathtaking, yeah. Thank you for sharing well, that. Praise and, God. And the
0: role that music played in that, was it, was this a connection that you made early, this relationship between music and the spiritual life, or is that something that developed and grew as you
1: developed? Well, definitely develop. developed and grew, but I think that, uh, you know, when you get exposed to the music of Vivaldi or Corelli or Bach, these oh. are spiritual composers. No. So they had a spiritual realm they were trying to depict. That's a parallel to my inner life. So um, there was a real—I uh, could see the joy and the goodness and all of those elements yeah. in the music was exactly what the Holy Spirit was building up inside of my life. And you know, and you remember, it's the context that was just completely out of control.
3: Yeah.
1: So I was uh, really blessed to have music. Never
3: mind the fact that I could express
1: myself—you
2: mm-hmm.
3: know—as an outlet. You know, as you were recounting that story, I was reminded of Alan Bloom. Mm -hmm. Uh, who wrote The Closing of the American Mind. He was Mm -hmm. a young Jewish kid Mm -hmm. who grew up in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I think he said at age 16, he laid his eyes upon the University of Chicago for Mm -hmm. the first time and rediscovered his life Mm -hmm. because those buildings, those Gothic buildings reminded him that life is more than utility or function, you know, making a living, manufacture. I mean, Chicago is like that, you know, the meatpacking center of the cosmos. But there may be something else to life, you know, beauty, truth, goodness. And he consecrated his life to that.
4: Now, this spiritual journey began in the most unexpected ways, you know, uh, that move, the divorce and all of that. Uh, What was it that kept you together? I mean, in those years, I imagine you were probably an evangelical. Were you still reading scripture? Well, uh, I kind of held to my promise to to read the
1: scripture every day since then. So um, uh, obviously the Holy Spirit was really what kept me together. The the 40,000 foot view never left, you know? And uh, to be able to see something as, you know, dire and as difficult, and to be see, actually see it as something beautiful. Right. I saw that, that start, I actually began to see the beauty of it because I could see the big yeah. picture. And of course, it ultimately it led to uh, seeing the most, the ugliest thing, which, you know, the most scandalous thing, which is the passion of Christ and seeing that as the epic, iconic oh, yeah. example of beauty. Right. You know? so. All of a sudden, you realize that where you think God has forsaken this place,
3: right? No. there's no end to yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. So God is really able to draw good out of evil. You owe your father a, a great debt of gratitude. Oh, I, I, I,
1: I think, uh, I, yeah, I don't know what I would have done. Yeah, God really yeah. used him. Yeah. Um, I mean, despite
3: the disaster of to... the to...
0: divorce. Oh, for sure. He gave sure. you advice that was indispensable. You would, Absolutely. You, you would not be sitting here. That's exactly that. right. So you talk exactly. about how, how beauty in music um, it reveals God. It's kind of this portal, this entry into God. So can you speak to that? And also, and we talked about this before, is when you're with individuals, my guess is when you were growing up with music and you were experiencing that, people around you were not necessarily experiencing that. Correct. So how do you, yeah, how do you, how do you navigate that, that you're able to talk about the beauty of music and God and, and uh, somebody else just plays a piece? How does that work?
1: Um, well, for sure, back when I was nine, there was no, um, no fellowship whatsoever. I felt very much it was, it was me, my Bible and God for a period of time. Um, But, but of course that led beyond that. Um, uh, uh, There's a lot of music that we play that again is spiritual music. And yeah, I think it really, without that faculty that I mentioned, there's a lot we miss. You know, uh, there's a whole other huge world beyond the surface.
3: Yeah. yeah, I mean, even when you consider somebody like Elvis Presley, uh, uh-huh. and, you know, the roots of rock uh, somehow stretch pretty far back, and they're deep. And uh, gospel music, I think, is is part of that. I mean, yeah. wasn't he trained as a gospel yeah. uh, musician before he discovered his hips and how to gyrate them. <laughs> And he released a number of gospel albums. Yeah, yeah, too. That's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'll refer to you guys with your uh, uh, Elvis uh, Yeah, you Dollar were shit. not enamored
1: at, <laughs> at all. I never, in fact, I just had a conversation with my wife. You know, I don't know what everyone got
4: out of Elvis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was but anyway, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I, I actually, do know that much that there was yeah. a gospel influence. Well, the sure. experience of music is a backing into beauty. I mean, it wasn't Elvis for me, but it was Clapton. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't the viola, but it right. was the guitar. Right. And the uh, I remember hearing his solo on the first album by Blind Faith, a song that he wrote, Presence of the Lord, that marked his own conversion. Mm. And almost all guitar lovers identify that as his single greatest guitar solo. I listened to it countless times, aspiring to that as a rock star wannabe, (laughs) but uh, I remember at the hinge moment of my life where I had come out of juvenile delinquency, it was listening to his testimony to the presence of the Lord and hearing his greatest musical solo, as it were, that kind of opened up a world to me in a way that was like, (laughs) that's not the way God usually works. And it was me and the Bible and God for a year or so as well. But uh, it's funny to hear your experience of Uh, the unlikeliest combination of boxing and viola and, you know, the divorce and all of that to see how God is writing straight with crooked lines. But I'm also reminded of this passage in Scripture, the Old Testament, where the priest is, is Aaron, the high priest. He's just perpetrated the golden calf cult. And yet, nevertheless, God accepts him and gives him literally these holy vestments that are the garments of beauty. And so, out of the ashes of the golden calf comes this figure of redemption. And it's such a strange juxtaposition to associate holiness with beauty. And yet that is really, as you said, one of the three transcendentals, but in some ways the most elusive. Truth, okay, you can prove it. Goodness, you can see it in another person. But beauty is the most transcendent of the transcendentals, you know. And yet at the same time, I'm thinking of our friend John Sayward, who wrote a book called The Beauty of Holiness and The Holiness of Beauty, how they really illuminate each other, and not just theoretically, but concretely, experientially as well. And, and you just can't point to a book or to a syllogism and say, this is how I experience God. It really is a kind of invisible invasion. Yeah, I would say that beauty is, you can't,
1: you know, you're not gonna add it up like you would a math problem. That's right and or good and evil, this is good and this is right, bad. Right. It kind of is more functions like a living being, mm. around when truth is in its fullness and goodness is in its fullness, this thing happens. And Balthazar speaks of it right. as the
3: splendor. And well, I, you know, th- I mean, there is a right. shocking side to it. And you touch on that when you mention uh, the passion of the Christ. Yeah. What, what Yeats calls a terrible beauty is born. <laughs> and that is exactly what happens on the cross. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a challenge, it's a scandal. How can this be attractive or appealing in any way? Yeah. And yet, I mean, Dostoevsky was right. Beauty will save the world. And this is the beauty that redeems. Exactly. And it exactly. takes grace to see that beauty, you know, amid the, the, sure. the disfiguring face sure. of, of the Son of God. And I think beauty is a, a great
1: entry point. You know, you may not have that faculty quite yet. But we all respond to it. I think we all have the image we of do. God in some degree. So we have this resonance. Even the atheist, I think. Exactly, turned on exactly. By exactly. Something beautiful. And, well, and I think, you know, I think Father Robert Barron, that's one of his mantras is beauty and evangelization is really the great first spear point. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And with the, you know, we'll get onto it, but the in liturgy, if we can have beauty, because it's evangelical function mm-hmm. oftentimes with yeah. young mm-hmm. people, have that really thought about.
0: Amen. We have much more to discuss, so please stay with us on Franciscan University Presents.
5: Let's hear from other voices at Franciscan University of Steubenville.
0: I think that art and beauty are essential for higher education because beauty radiates truth, and we can't fully understand truth without beauty then. Beauty is one of the three transcendentals, which are truth, beauty, and goodness. And without them, we can't fully understand what God has to offer us.
3: When you see the world through a Catholic lens, you see God's hand at work in human history. You see the true, the good, the beautiful. Franciscan University of Steubenville's Master of Arts in Catholic Studies is an online program that offers courses in literature, biology, art, theology, psychology, all taught from a distinctively Catholic perspective so you can see the world with Catholic eyes. Find out more about the Masters in Catholic Studies. Go to Franciscan.edu/mcs
0: Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're discussing art and beauty and the relationship between Catholic faith and liturgy. Um, is beauty objective? Like, should, should somebody be able to see beauty and it move them, stir them, lead them to God? How, how, does one, how does one experience beauty?
1: Well, on a philosophical level, I should yield that topic to you. Um, but from a classical music yeah. standpoint, uh, all of the class, you know, successful performing classical musicians, everyone I know has really devoted their entire life to it. I mean, a lot of the string players can start as early as three, and four years old, and you wonder, why is that necessary? And that's because there's objective principles in music yeah. that you have to master. So you know the, the four main ones are intonation, rhythm, tone, and shaping. All of them are ruled by objective principles. Intonation mm-hmm. is the way the cosmos works. It's the way matter vibrates. And you have to align yourself absolutely perfectly in pitch. That, literally, you never stop working on that. No. And Aunt Sally's singing the, <laughs> the, you know, the psalm, and she's got a great vibrato, and it's very musical, but she's flat the whole time. There's really? nothing you can do, it's ugly, right? Um, so that's something that takes, literally, it's arduous task. Um, second thing is rhythm, and what is that? That's simply the even fractionalization of time. You're lining up your time. So I call it the truth, which is the metronome, So you're practicing with the metronome, and that thing just gets faster and faster, or slower and slower. Of course, it's us being able to really create that inner rhythm. That's an objective reality in beauty. You don't have that. You don't have beauty tone. Same thing. You'd think that'd be a little more subjective. Is it warmer? You know, you can use you know some flexibility with that, but still, it's ruled by clarity and warmth and all these things that are really you know kind of transcendent.
3: Mm. So anyway, absolutely, there's an objectivity to beauty. My my children uh, were raised on the violin, and for some, it didn't take. (laughs) But when you don't hit the right note in the right way, it's very painful. I mean, the, the violin is pitiless. And, and so that testifies to a certain objectivity, it's got to be there. If it isn't, it's hideous uh, to have to uh, listen to that, to endure that kind of torment. Yeah, yeah. and uh, to be a string player, particularly, and a violist, viola's the worst. Is that right? Oh yeah, because it's too
1: small for the pitches. Okay. So it whines and groans. Oh. You're constantly in a war with
4: your instrument. That's so funny. Um, no, it's absolutely true. Yeah. You know, but you ask the question, is uh, beauty something that is objective? Or, like most people think today, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It practically defines what we mean by subjectivity or just mere subjectivism. You know, it's like, what pizza toppings do you prefer? You know, but in fact, in the Catholic tradition, both philosophically, theologically, as well as liturgically and sacramentally, beauty, you know, there is a whole discipline or a subdiscipline within philosophy known as aesthetics. And there is a philosophical aesthetics. Von Balthasar, of course, has sort of refined a theological aesthetic. But the idea of metaphysics studying being, but being is convertible as truth to the mind, as goodness to the will, and as beauty to the soul and to the heart. And it uplifts us every bit as much as truth does, but in a different way. But it isn't like non-objective. if there's any clear demarcation or or line of division between the perennial philosophy of Aquinas or Bonaventure, going back to Plato and Aristotle, and everything since Immanuel Kant and Hegel and Nietzsche, it's beauty, Mm -hmm. you know, because for postmoderns, the idea of beauty being real and true and objective and universally accessible, I mean, that is pure mythology. (laughs) Whereas retrieving this, I think in some ways, is for Catholics in general, but especially Catholic institutions of higher learning like Franciscan. It isn't enough to just teach it in philosophy. You have to experience that as well to recognize that nature, you know, that harmony, proportion, and all of the criteria for authentic beauty. These things are not just knowable, but they need to be experienced, you know. Mm -hmm. Vivaldi, you know, but also in the mass. I remember, you know, in particular, it was just uh, Marian art, Botticelli. Before I was even Catholic, I'm like, dang, we don't do art like they do, (laughs) And she is the blueprint of the divine, communicated to the finite, to the human, through beauty. And uh, we haven't really begun to recover that nearly enough. You know, uh, the the perfect illustration of the point that, that you all are making,
3: it's found in C.S. Lewis, The Abolition of Man. He tells the story that Coleridge uh, tells. Two guys come to uh, a, uh, a waterfall and one of them says, you know, this is really sublime. But the other guy says, no, it's just pretty. Coleridge endorses the first judgment and denounces the other guy because he's aesthetically defective. He's a Philistine. That waterfall demands a kind of response, what, what uh, von Hildebrand would say is a value response. There is beauty inherent in that waterfall, and if you don't see it, uh, you're sort of as pathetic as a monkey, uh, and, and you are to be pitied, but we're not going to enshrine your insights uh, at uh, the Metropolitan uh, Museum of Art. Right, right absolutely. I've, I've always loved meteorology. Go figure. Um,
1: but in my teaching, I have big windows in my studio, I point out at the blue sky and I say, you, I understand why how light ref- refracted, okay, and why it's blue, but it's way, way, way deeper than that. Yeah. And, and I put point through all kinds of things in nature and how they can re- represent other truths because of the beauty in our inner lives. Mm-hmm. And that's a really key piece of education. And it, it's a huge evangelical tool, as a matter of fact, because the parallels there that world, at least in great music, does not is not a relativistic world.
0: Yeah. Right. and that's one of the things that, that I think is important, and you've mentioned it, and it's what we're encouraging the students here is to experience that. Is uh, I was raised in a small town in Colorado. This was not a part of the world that I lived in. It wasn't until I moved to Washington D.C. that I had the opportunity to to be able to partake of this. And I love bringing the kids to your concerts because there's something about being confronted with this. And and I yes, yeah, it just speak to that that it's not just I don't know how to explain it, it's, it's more of the soul. It's, there's something about when you hear the beauty. Speak to that, and, and what's going on? and how do we engage that? And um, I, I think, and you can correct me
1: if I'm wrong here, but I've always thought that there was a certain other, you have the trinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit kind of parallels beauty in a sense. There's an emanation or a splendor, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but you can find them in other places, like faith, hope, and love, you know. And you think about Paul speaking, if you could have all the knowledge in the world, you could give everything you have to the poor, but if you don't have love, right. you've negated it all. Yeah. And that beauty is a similar mm-hmm. uh, role, and, and I think it brings out the fact that this isn't negotiable. We must have that. Yeah. And, and partly yeah, because when you, when you do encounter it, you're drawn into the goodness of it and ultimately the truth. And hopefully that truth
4: is, you know, all of this leads to God. What what you're doing is showing us or reminding us that that beauty goes beyond mere appearance. And I think that's the necessary step to break through that sense that pizza toppings or, you know, it's just what you think is beauty. You know, there is a sense in which a model is beautiful, but that's superficial, if not counterfeit. But Mother Teresa, I remember looking at pictures of her and I mean, the wrinkles, the yeah. age and everything else. And yet the interior was just externalized in a way that was beautiful. I remember seeing the one picture where she was smiling. I mean, just her whole face was beaming. And it's like, finally, you, you, you have proof that your intuition was true, you know, that uh, a saint is beautiful. You know, some people argue, is it Bach or is it Mozart? You know, well, beauty is not reducible to one thing, one size doesn't fit all. And yet there is something that is universal about beauty. And I think that's what we have to recover, that there is a unity and a diversity and a universality. And if, if it's music or if it's poetry or if it's art, you know, and they're always going to be the Philistines who come along and say, well, you can't prove that's beautiful. I mean, that's like a tone deaf music critic or a color blind art critic. I'm more objective than you are, you know. No, you're disqualified.
3: You know, you you mentioned the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, Dorothy Sayers uh, uses that that image, that that Trinitarian model to account for art. You have an idea, that's the Father. You need to express it, You're, you're constrained, you're moved to give it visible form. That's the sun. And if you do it well, there is an awakening. Uh, there is a, a discovery, a virtual experience of that form uh, and that idea in the Holy Spirit. Somebody else recognizes it and, and they have one of those uh, Eureka moments. Yes, I can see what you were trying to say because you said it so well. The form matched mm. the content of the idea. And, and I applaud you. Mm. Yeah. Not everybody can pull that off of yeah. course. Yeah.
1: And I think you can apply the same question to the other two transcendentals, and then it becomes a little clearer. You know, is truth objective? The moment you declare no, you're now an asteroid. You're you're, a, you're, you're you've cut yourself off, right? Yeah. Truth is, basically disappears, right, of course. no such thing. Same thing with morality. You pull, you say it's not, it's not objective, it immediately disappears. Yeah. And beauty is, is really functioning, functions the
0: same way. Can you teach it? Or can you, how do you teach? Obviously you teach. How do you teach people to appreciate the beauty of, of what you do, of your music? How, how do you do that?
1: Um, well, a lot of it you can't, but you lead them to it. Okay. You know, and it's, again, through that arduous work. And, and we all recognize it when we see it and when we hear it, when a student mm-hmm. plays a great recital. Oh, that was so beautiful. Yeah. But then I come back and why? What, what are the elements there that... They manifested, that allowed that beauty, because the truth is beauty isn't something you
3: control right. again, like the other the other transcendentals it's really. It it, it really is a kind of paradox. Uh, I'm I'm thinking of a a wonderful essay by Joseph Epstein, also from Chicago, Mm. and he speaks of the majestic mysteries of music. And he says, you know, I love music. I'm a serious uh, uh, student of music. I go to all of the concerts in Chicago, but I don't understand it. It moves me, it touches my heart, but I can't explain it. I mean, how do you account for that? I mean, that, that's my experience. I mean, I love listening to uh, uh, Bach or Beethoven, and yet I, I can't really unpack the structure of the symphony. Sure. When I was
1: 13, I heard the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and. Uh, uh, if you've been to Orchestra hall, it's a hall, the hall's right up against the road, so there's this little sidewalk and that's it. I was so moved by that, and I could never have explained what it was. Mm-hmm. So moved though that I, I look back and I'm astounded that this actually happened, but it actually did. I was out on that sidewalk bawling, praying to God that I'd be able to do that someday. Huh.
3: How, how the, old were you?
1: Thirteen. 13. Oh my. So it, at that's that really point cute. in time, I knew that I wanted to participate. In, in beauty in that way and Lord little I had no idea I was Lord please say yes mm-hmm. he said yes yeah. and uh, but that's how powerful that was yeah. for me so I don't not sure I have the the answer to your question.
3: I mean, lots of kids at age 13 are robbing banks. <laughs> <laughs> I would, would have been if it wasn't for the Holy yeah. anyway. Spirit. <laughs> yeah, but I think right. there's something
0: to that. It's When I listen to people who are sharing their relationship with the Lord, it's often ineffable. They can't. It is. They can't yeah. put, they, they, it, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's mm-hmm. like. But there's just something about it that's, profoundly beautiful that that opens, I think, ourselves up and, and actually heals us and, and restores us and makes us, and re- I think refreshes us. Yeah, and I think it'd be uh, uh,
1: unfortunate if we could always give the explanation. Yeah, I think yeah. The fact that's that it's right. a divine it's mystery, origin, yeah. Yeah. It, it makes sense that it would have that mystery. Right, because you
0: can you can just, you just talked about the tone and and all, that. you can explain that to me and it's like, oh, okay, that's fine, but, right. but I don't understand, I mean, I, in print. But to listen to something that it's all comes together, is there something about that? I mean,
3: isn't it sort of Pharisaical to think that you can explain it? Remember? I mean, in the New Testament, the Pharisees had already figured out Jesus. He was a problem they solved. He wasn't a mystery. Uh, they weren't hungry for the word. I mean, the words that he spoke were like stones. They just sort of fell into an ocean of their indifference. But then you have those other people who 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 flock to hear him and hang on every word. They can't explain exactly in, in terms of of a syllogism. Well now what what does this mean? But it changes
0: their life. Yeah. I can't live without him. And in just one moment. Sure. Uh, stay with us and we'll have more with Francisco University Presents. I think that art and beauty are essential for bringing people closer to Christ because beauty disengages us. It allows us us to leave ourselves behind and instead engage with Christ. It puts us in a position of wonder and it allows us to experience the invisible through the visible.
5: Walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. You'll explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage in the Holy Land, Poland, France, Austria, Italy, and more destinations. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages.
0: Welcome back and thank you for joining us. We're watching Francisca University Presents, which we record in the ComArt Studio here at Francisca University in Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and all the equipment, and our theology professors, Dr. Martin and Dr. Hahn, and I are speaking with Stanley Kanopka, who is part of the Cleveland Orchestra, and we're talking about the beauty, uh, the role of beauty in worship. Um, Before we started, we were talking a little bit about Vienna, and i love to go to Vienna because you can go to St. Peter's, which is a beautiful Baroque church, and a block away, you've been there obviously, go to St. Stephen's. The beauty of of those two churches, and to be able to be a part of that. Maybe speak to the the role of beauty and worship, the beauty and liturgy, and how those come together. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Well, I want to say one thing about St. Stephen's. St. St. Stephen's uh, is a very special place in my heart, because it was in that cathedral, of course, that was you know it's jaw dropping beauty yeah. right but i was also free again with that faculty of the holy spirit to see the theology behind all this beauty mm-hmm. and i'd been it just finished a th- finished a, didn't know I was finished till that moment of a three year theological journey that led me to the church and mm. it was in st stephen's cathedral that i realized there was no longer anything in between me and joining this church—that's oh, fantastic. And yeah. so I think about, say, Stevens. I have a picture of that in my hallway, which I see That's every fantastic. day in my home. That's um, fantastic. But back to the, the liturgy. Yeah. Um, you know the principles we talked about—objective principles. Um, the church understands all of that, and the church has spoken really with some detail about how music is meant to be used in liturgy, and uh, those principles are out there. But I think. As a church, we've detached ourselves, we've followed the world, at least in some parishes or diocese, and have detached ourselves from those principles. I think in a lot of the documents the church has you know, given to us. Sometimes there's a lovingly pastoral loophole at the end that says, well, for pastoral reasons, you can ease your parish into these principles. But I think we've, in some cases, have abused that loophole and have fallen to where our art and our music have really uh, come short yeah. of, of what it's meant mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. I believe that music is really, I mean, I correct me. Mm-hmm. I think we're meant to be transfigured yeah. in liturgy. I think the point is that the texts are transfigured by the music, by song. Yeah. I think, you know, the bread and wine is transfigured. I think we're meant to be transfigured. Sure. So it's a singular event that happens in liturgy. Right. Yeah. and. Uh, therefore, it should be a singular music. Right. It's a singular event. That's why St. Stephen's looks the way it looks. Right, yeah. There's nothing else in the world like it, and it's because, you know, as you know, we have with a whim, the Lord said, create the stars,
2: mm.
1: Right. Yeah. you know, hundred billion stars in our galaxy, now discovered there's two trillion galaxies mm. in right, the known yeah.
3: universe with a whim He did that, that's what we encounter yeah. when we go into no, the No end of enchantment. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If, if prayer is lifting your mind and heart to God, then why shouldn't the music and the architecture lift your mind and heart to God as well? I mean, that was the whole point of the Gothic. Yeah. I mean, it was a lance aimed at the heart of God. Mm-hmm. And Gilson has this wonderful uh, uh, statement that it was the product of both piety and geometry. You have to love God, but you also have to know how to build something. Right. Okay. And that happy combination
0: gave us St. Stephen's. But, but what, what makes St. Peter's, you know, the Baroque? That, yeah. that is, Aren't they both beautiful? Yeah. And now, one could, one could have a preference yeah. know, over yeah. one, yeah. but I think that profoundly different, expressing a different theology at a different time, yeah. Yeah. both yeah. are beautiful. Yeah.
4: But in either case, you're not simply borrowing from culture you're transforming the culture Absolutely. and elevating it as well. You know, and I think back to when we were discussing the Trinity. When we worship, we're not just paying attention to what we're doing. We're paying attention to what God has done, what He wants to do in our midst, you know. And so, just as we were discussing in the previous segment, music, beauty pulls us out of ourselves. It's almost like a, an objective exodus of the subject. You know, and I'm not looking at myself, I'm looking at something that is extracting me from my mere self. And I think of the Trinity as being present for that purpose. You know, again, the word proceeds from the Father, but the word is more than just the words on the page, it's more than the poetry the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, much like words are transformed by song. You know, you can memorize poetry, but when you hear a song yeah. that you love, yeah. you don't, it doesn't take any effort. It just, you remember it. And the memoria of our own liturgical faculty, you know, do this in remembrance of me, remember the Sabbath day. The memory is just transfigured by beauty and not just music, but also art. Mm-hmm. You know, and so if we realize You know, in the Mass, we're in heaven. We're singing the same songs as the angels and the saints, the same prayer, the same sacrifice and all of that. Let's allow heaven and the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to transfigure our music, our our dress, the architecture, as well as the art, and sort of let the chips fall where they may. It might be Baroque, you know, or it might be Rococo after the Reformation or whatever, but still, you know, it's that radical openness to the Holy Spirit.
0: And it's what I, I always remember, uh, Dr. Alan Schreck, he did this whole thing on the Incarnational Principle, and, and, and how we as Catholics that, that we use those things, we see, we hear, the incense, I believe part of your story, or maybe it was yes. Jeff Cavins, I mean, smelling the incense and, and taking them back to a yeah. child, you know, yeah. that's one of the things that, that we, the, the beauty, I can he- hear a song that I heard when I was 20 years old in a prayer meeting, it still moves my heart because of of the value and the beauty that was in that.
3: The the smells and bells. Yeah, Yeah, doesn't matter. I mean, I'm I'm steeped in the Baroque and Rome is awash uh, with examples of the Baroque. Uh, my, My great friend and mentor, Fritz Wilhelmsen, used to say that the Baroque, it's not a symbol of anything. It is an explosion of reality. <laughs> and, and I can personally uh, verify that. When I visited uh, the Church of Our Lady of, of Victory in Rome, and there in the middle was this transverberation of St. Teresa of Avila. Uh, she's being pierced repeatedly by shaft upon shaft of divine love, and she falls into an ecstasy. You are literally outside yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a vicarious experience of that, and I resolved at the end of it, we're going to stay in Rome. We're not going back uh, to Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yeah, a, a, fr- a friend of mine uh, who's a, a sacred music scholar,
1: Adam Bartlett, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he explained it in a wonderful way in terms of the role of art and music. And he's, you know, the, the liturgy is the source and summit. So the summit's the beginning of that picture of the mountain of the church. Mm. And you have, the bottom of that mountain, which is the culture at large. And Catholics need to not run from the world, but they need to take their art and and raise up the culture, which is what we saw, you know, the church has done that for centuries. We need to re-engage and be a part of that. Then you have the next realm, which is evangelization. That's a different function. The art should take a different nature because it has a different objective. And we all, I think, have been exposed to that. Uh, where, you know, music bring us to Jesus or what have you. And then you have the devotional, which is further up the mountain, right? Which is, we all want that as praise and worship, I think functions beautifully in that. Um, The common denominator among all of them is that they're personal expressions, Mm. right? They're coming out from us to God and that's wonderful. And these realms bleed into one another. But to what you said, Scott, when you get into the liturgy, again, it's a totally singular event. It's not really a personal expression. It's actually not an evangel- ev- 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 evangelistic thing. We're joining in with the song of Christ to God. And it's something that, that's I think my son alludes to, is that it really needs to come from, n- n- the last thing we want to do is take a dollop of the culture at large and dump it up on top of our liturgy. And that unfortunately is what does happen. But if we can understand the liturgy for what it is, as artists, as musicians, as music ministers, I think
3: it's really gonna
2: be transformative.
3: It's Mm -hmm. essential that that Mm -hmm. happens. Well, a culture that has become depraved and celebrates the ugly is the last thing you want to uh, import uh, into uh, the observance of divine liturgy. I mean, that would be an insult to God, and it certainly doesn't do justice uh, to uh, the longings of the heart uh, for transcendence When I've been to services, you know, Protestant
1: services and Catholic services, you know, the next step in that liturgy would be to have, um, you know. clouds of, what is it, the frozen ice, you know, the ice right. Uh, right. <laughs> to come out and have lights come yeah. on and the, the rock band, you know, it's really astounding what, where we've, how far we've and gone. The real proper Yeah,
4: yeah. And that would be an example. of yeah. But you've given it. us a kind of reason why that can be used by God, because mm-hmm. to reach people, I mean, God stoops down in divine condescension Absolutely. to wherever we are. And I remember in Young Life back in the 70s, you know, the music that was popular was what was adapted for reaching our hearts as high school kids. But as you move from the temple, you know, as you move through the temple from the court of the Gentiles to the holy place, to the holy of holies, you're, you're suggesting that praise and worship can also be something of an encounter with God, especially in paraliturgical meetings where you're praying and you're, you know, Uh, entering into that kind of thanksgiving. But there really is a sense in which the Holy of Holies is not the liturgy we want, it's what we need, Mm. whether we want it or not. And, you know, that sort of personal extraction, you know, where you have to transcend yourself, and then in the process, you discover something so much more important than yourself. You know, I, I can practically map that onto my own life experience from Protestantism, to Catholicism, to experiencing a kind of liturgy that is not timely, but timeless. Mm -hmm. And I I just, I have to say, that has a capacity to transform me in a way that I can't verbalize. I can't express it. I'll come out of that and say, whatever that was, I can't explain, but I'm drawn magnetically back again and again.
0: And you see that journey in your own life of how the
4: Lord used different places to bring you to there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And it was never reducible to liturgical politics right, right, or right. debates. Exactly. It's not. just like, you know, arguing about, you know, um, your wife's beauty with somebody else who thinks his wife is more. It's like just time out. Yeah. You know, uh, God is calling us. Let's respond. Yeah. Yeah. I think one topic uh, that's important is to uh, know
1: the difference between principles and preferences. Yeah. 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 The church has it's made good. those principles clear, yeah. and so if we're actually devoted to those pr- those principles and not our preferences, yeah. I think that it resolves a lot of right. conflict. Yeah. You know, uh, on many college campuses, Catholic campuses, yeah. you yeah. have the, the praise and worship crowd and the the trads, yeah. you know, or whatever, right. yeah. and that's a chasm. All of these divisions, mm. right. whether you're dividing the Holy Spirit from the body of you know Christ. Yeah any of these trinities that they fork apart, you can talk about that forever with TOB, Theology of the Body, how yeah. it's all diabolical. Yeah. So any time any of these uh, things that are facets it's of one, break, yeah.
0: th- evil's constantly yeah. dividing it. So anyway. I hey, mean, I would be remiss if I didn't just invite you to just share a little bit about your experience of working with our students and, and what that's been like for you. I don't know where to start. That's great.
1: I think with all my experience with the orchestra, taught at Cleveland Institute of Music for for 30 years as well, um, it's really the culmination.
0: That's so fantastic.
1: I could cry about that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, it's it's really applying everything that means the most to me, you know, outside of my vocation as a husband and father, but even my kids at the school. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But uh, it, it literally is applying everything I've ever learned and yet, and now baptizing it in a very, very yeah. profound way here on this campus. Yeah. And to join forces with people like you, the mission like this, mm-hmm. is one of the greatest callings of my life. And so it is, I don't, that's the best I can say. It's just so fulfilling. Well, that's the highest
3: possible praise I think you could heap upon our students. I've been here 30 years, and I've never heard anybody wax so lyrical about our students as you just have. It's uh,
4: uh, It's really inspiring. It's also inspiring to have your kids here, but also for your daughter, not only have the spiritual values, but as a pianist and as a a great musician. And likewise, you're directing his son's thesis yeah. on music and liturgy and theology. And yeah. that sort of thing shows that, you know, I mean, God can work through divorce in mm-hmm. people's lives, the brokenness can be healed. But for your marriage to be that important, for your family to be that important, I think the students really get the spillover effect of that. Because when we teach, we really are parenting in a way yeah. that is not reducible to the biological or the social. But it's, it's, it's great to have you here as a colleague. It's also great to have our students get to have this experience of beauty. Okay. Well, I'm moved by them.
0: Yeah, no, it's been a great place. The first time we met, you said one of your goals was to be able to have an event at the end of each semester, which has been a great delight. So uh, next, our panel and our guests will share their final thoughts on beauty and Catholic tradition. Please stay with us. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. So, Regis, if you'd share your final thoughts. Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm no end of grateful uh,
3: to you, Stanley, for coming. Uh, I'm, I'm just really moved by, by the example of, of your life and the fact that your work seems to be an extension of that life. It's really vocational, uh, and uh, it, it's deeply consoling uh, to hear this. Uh, One of my heroes is uh, Romano Guardini, who wrote a book on the liturgy. In fact, he helped spearhead of the great uh, reform of the liturgy, beginning uh, in the 1920s, which bore fruit at the Second Vatican Council. But uh, Guardini sort of rediscovered his faith uh, at Mass in the liturgy. It wasn't so much uh, the syllogisms of St. Thomas. In fact, he wrote his dissertation on Bonaventure, which got him sort of disqualified from teaching in the seminary because he wasn't a Thomist. But it was the liturgy that really saved him. And he said, here at least you are free to lose yourself in a kind of freedom, a playfulness uh, uh, with God, wasting time prodigiously at prayer. And if you have the right music to accompany uh, that prayer and that adoration, uh, it's glorious. It really does become a foretaste of Heaven. I'm I'm reminded of of a movie that that really shaped uh, my my life, uh, Chariots of Fire. I don't know if you've seen that, but but the the young kid whose sister wants him to leave uh, the world of sport and come with her to China and and peddle Bibles and, and evangelize the heathen, he resists, not because he doesn't want to do it, but right now he wants to run. And she says, why do you want to run? And he says, because when I do, I feel God's pleasure. Mm -hmm. And the liturgy confers that pleasure. Mm -hmm. Guardini has a chapter on the playfulness of the liturgy. There's a sense in which it doesn't really have any purpose. It's meaning. It's like a kid playing uh, blocks or building castles of of sand at the seashore. What is this for? It's not for anything. It's just life. I'm I'm celebrating life. And don't stop me. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful.
0: Thank you,
4: Scott. Wow. I, too, want to echo that gratitude and say thank you. Uh, when I think about liturgy, when I think about beauty, it brings us back to the notion of holiness. And that is the thing that we've been made for, to become saints. Without holiness, no one will see God. You know, Hebrews 12:14. So strive for it. But the striving is really a kind of letting go and letting God. Um, and I think sometimes we want to box it and then kind of put a a label patent on it. You know, I, I have been to masses where the music has just transported us. I've also been to masses where it felt like, oh, it's a concert and they're allowing mass to be held, you know, said too, yeah. And uh, it's really different, you know. And I would say that's not only a different kind of experience in public worship, it's also an entirely different experience when it comes to performing you know music or whatever else you do to contribute to worship because I imagine that there are musicians who are so egocentric and so caught up in their own style that like the pharisees you know this is a problem to solve not a mystery to encounter and I think that's true even for professional theologians perhaps especially for us it's an occupational hazard but as you were saying children We're called to be childlike, not childish, you know, in a kind of simplistic way. But if we allow ourselves to be children in the presence of God with the Blessed Virgin there to reinforce that, that status, that reality. We're open to a beauty that will, in fact, do what Dostoevsky said. Mm-hmm. It will, it will convert the world. It'll change us in the process, and, and help it, you know, help us to recognize that becoming a saint is not like bigger and better, smarter and stronger. It really is smaller and closer, like Our Lady. Beautiful. Thank you.
0: Final thoughts, Dan? That's a perfect
1: segue to one thought I had, which is Benedict XVI foresaw the dead branches of the church falling off and the church becoming much smaller, as you said, and, uh, and much leaner and much more pure and strong, and uh, which is encouragement. Um, I don't think any of that's gonna be realized without liturgical reform. And I think that movement's really happening um, because it, it's, you know, I think of like the pew statistics of the youth just mm-hmm. leaving in droves, right? If we could get a young person to even get into a liturgy, I would love to have the power of music that God put into it, the power of beauty to be able to penetrate those young people and bring them back to the openness that maybe there is goodness here Mm. and maybe there is real Mm. truth here. And uh, so that's my personal mission Mm, is to try to to encourage that change.
0: Beautiful. Good, thank you so much. That's great. We have some quotes here that are available to you, a handout, uh, some brief reflections on beauty. The handout would be yours for free if you simply go online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number we'll provide momentarily. Um, first off, again, thank you so much uh, for being here. My I pleasure. shared that, that I went to a liturgy one time at St. Stephen's. It was the Feast of St. Stephen and, and how I reflect on it, the music, it just, it just rolls. It was like a waterfall that you just kind of stand underneath that is just beautiful. But our reflections today uh, caused me actually to think and remember an individual I met when I was working. I, I was, had the great pleasure of going to China and working with the underground church a number of times. And I met this one Chinese woman. Uh, she shared her story with me. And she said that when she was about 12 or 13 years old, she began to ask the question, what is the meaning of life? And what is the purpose of life? And in wrestling with those fundamental questions, obviously no faith, faith was not a part of her environment. It wasn't a part of her world. So she was beginning to discover, looking for that, that thing that's going to satisfy, that's going to give her meaning. And she would share that she went to university in Beijing to study art. And she said that there was something when you look at a piece, again, with no faith whatsoever, if you look at a piece of art, it moves in you. And she says that, that it's possible that this is actually going to give my life purpose and give my life meaning. She shares that she was looking at a particular piece of art one day in class, in the middle of class, and she heard in the back of her mind, in her heart, um, art cannot give purpose and art cannot give meaning. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of shaked her world. She thought that this was what was going to give it. She would share that the later in the day she was walking by uh, a church and she'd never been in a church before. And she was walking by this church and she felt drawn, pulled to walk into this church. And she opens up the door and she walks in and in large characters along the side of the wall was God is love. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, she looked at that and in wrestling with the whole idea of who is God? What does that mean? What is that? And, and what does it mean that he's love? And she said to herself, if this is true, um, then this is what I've been looking for." And she made an appointment with the priest and ends up being baptized a Catholic Christian uh, the following Easter. She would go on to share the connection that she experienced between art and beauty and God, that, that it was that gap that was missing for her, that, that it opened up in her, um, the possibility that there is something greater and something more beautiful. And I think that's exactly what you're doing is is I've I've listened to you play on a number of occasions and I just kind of close my eyes and and allow that. You you talk about beauty being a portal to God, allowing that to this encounter of something bigger than me, something greater than me, and and ultimately that's what happens every time I, I go to the liturgy. Every time we go to the liturgy is we encounter the Lord uh, who is present to us, who wants to open up a world to us and now allow us to encounter Him, that, that is ultimately transformative. So, thank you so much for sharing your Amen. story, and thank you for the care and the concern that you provide to my students. It's a my, great blessing. My pleasure. Great. Uh, thank you so much. We'll just ask the Lord's blessing upon you that you continue to know the Lord's peace, His blessing, Lord, that the beauty uh, that is in this world would be experienced and would be transformative in our hearts. May the Lord bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Amen.
5: Download a free handout on today's topic at faithandreason.com slash presents. You can also watch past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request the handout by emailing us at presents at franciscan.edu. Or reach us by phone for today's handout by calling 800-783-6447. That's 800-783-6447.